Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and get to Mark chapter 6. It feels good to say that. We've been waiting uh, all summer to get back into Mark. I was excited to do so in my time of prep, and I think uh, it's just going to be fun to get back in here. I, I love always what Paul has to say. I love reading through the Old Testament, things like that, but sometimes it's just good to see what Jesus has to say uh, in, in Scripture. Of course, it's all him, but um, getting to watch his life and the way that he speaks to others is always uh, beneficial. Um, before we get into the text, though, uh, again, Mark chapter 6, as you're finding it. Oh, and just so you know, if you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, um, we have Bibles out there. I wanted to make note of that as well. So if ever you come in, even if you forget a Bible, your Bible on a Sunday morning, feel free to just grab it and return it. It's fine. But if you don't have one, that is yours to take. Um, so to, this morning, I'm going to cover a few points this, as we look to this text. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment. But as we look over it, I want us to see how Christ is revealed in these few texts, these few verses here. And the way that I, I'm, I'm going to break things down, and in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and give you all the points to my sermon. Uh, some people's personality prefer that, and so in others, maybe, maybe not. But um, I'm gonna, we're going to kind of break down how the Lord, how Jesus in this text calls us, equips us, provides for us, defends us, and reveals himself to us. And so keep that in mind as we look over our text this morning. And let's do that now. If you would, stand with me. Mark chapter 6. Again, we stand to honor God's word in this place, his infallible word. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they, not, they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Bless this time that we have. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word. We thank you for it. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So God calls. That's where we're going to begin in our, in our text here. It says that he, Jesus, called the twelve. And if we're not careful, we might look over this or quickly assume some things and overlooked, overlook uh, maybe or perhaps a very, very important thing that's being done or an important assumption that could be made if you just glance over it or run through this quickly. The fact is, is that 
he has called, he's already called these men. We see this in earlier chapters of Mark and the other points of the Gospels where he has called these men. He has been teaching them, discipling them, showing them. They've been growing in the ministry with Jesus. And now Jesus sees that this is an opportunity for them to go out and do something. He's basically sending them away on a short-term mission trip. Just something that he wants them to go off. They're going to return, but he's sending them out so that they can do ministry on their own. But he calls them. Matthew 28, verse 19 You've probably heard of this before. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is, uh, is about to send them out to do. He has sent them out to make disciples, not just make converts, not just go and, and share Jesus, and yes, share Jesus, and yes, see the lost come to know him, but making disciples, this is what's happening when he says that he has called the 12, that, that they knew that when, when something is, someone is being called, that there's, this is sort of a loaded statement, a package, you might say. And so these were disciples, men who were called by God. The writer of Hebrews shares with us what it means to be called, what it means to be learning, what it means to be Discipline to be a disciple, to be committed. Hebrews 5.12, it says this, for though, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. The solid, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice or discipline to distinguish good from evil. We don't know that who the writer of Hebrews is necessarily. Maybe it's because uh, this verse in particular, they didn't want to reveal their identity. It's, it's a little bit harsh and uh, can be difficult to read at some times because what the writer is saying is that those who have been called are those who are disciplined who are in constant practice, who are, are those that should even maybe as time has gone on should be teaching, but in fact maybe aren't because they aren't moving on to solid food. The disciples, Jesus knew in this moment that these men were ready because they were off the milk, so to say. They were ready to learn that they were ready because the concern that Jesus might have had at some point maybe was lifted to some degree in understanding that they had been discipled to the point of maturity that they could then go and share with others. And don't hear me when I say that you know you have to be to some sort, sort of level or hold some sort of office or have been in ministry for any sort of, certain amount of time before you can start to share the gospel. I would say that as soon as it's revealed to you, share it. Share it with others. Share your testimony. Share what you know of Jesus. But walking in maturity is important that we understand this as we read through this text today, that these other, when, when he speaks of equipping and providing, defending, revealing, that being called is already assumed. Is that making sense? This is why I'm sort of harping on this, is that you will understand that what it means to be called, what it means to be a disciple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor, theologian, uh, was martyred. He said this, that the life of, 
of discipleship can only be maintained so long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves, neither the law nor personal piety nor even the world. What Dietrich is, is getting at is that someone who has called, someone who's going to be working in what the, the next bit of scripture we're going to cover, understands that to be a true disciple of Jesus means that our perspective is truly on him that we're not being distracted by other things. This is what it means to be called. It took me years to, to understand this, I think. In, in my own walk, it took me years to, to understand that if I actually just woke up and I began my day in the scripture, and I began my day praying, my life would eventually just begin to change. <laughs> right? I, I think that I had gotten to the point where I had been thinking that if I, as long as I just sit in services and I absorb what the pastor's saying, then I'll grow. And, and I, I did, like over time, I guess I went from like, you know, formula milk to vitamin D milk. You know, I, I just kind of moved up in the consistency of what it was, but it was still milk. And so I, as I began to mature in my own faith and become challenged by sermons maybe like this, I began to realize that personal discipline is the only way that I could truly begin to understand who Jesus was, and what he was saying in his word. That hearing the pastor preach is important, it's good, it's biblical, and I would encourage you to continue doing so. But personal discipline is what these men, these 12, had to have had by walking with Jesus because we know that Jesus called them and he sends them out. And so Jesus sends these men out and it shows, he shows us that he not only sends them, but he equips them, having priorly equipped them, prior equipped them, and still equipping them. We see in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, why did Jesus give them this authority? R.C. Sproul, his commentary on this chapter says this, the fundamental purpose of miracles, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, was to authenticate agents of revelation. And so we, we are seeing that Jesus is giving them authority because he knows they're going to need this authority when they go out. He knows that they're going to need some sort of power so that they can authenticate what, the, what is being said. Jesus performs miracles most of his miracles at the beginning stages of his ministry for this very reason. John 3, 2, it says that this man came by Jesus at night, talking about Nicodemus, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Why? For no one can see these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus saw the things, he saw the authority that Jesus had, and from that realized that this is the real deal, that Jesus is a Real teacher is what he believed and then would later learn he was much more than just a teacher. In fact, we see in the Old Testament the same sort of account, Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, And then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear by you. So Moses is conflicted with this too. He's saying, look, I've got to have some type of authority. I've got to have something. Lord, give me something. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. And he said, well, throw it onto the ground. So he threw it onto the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. 
And the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. And the reason is that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So here is this miracle that God has equipped Moses with to say, this will be proof. This miracle will lead to the revelation of me. Miracles that do not point to Christ are not miracles. Miracles that do not uh, exhort God are not miracles. They're just tricks. And if you know the story of Moses, he has the staff and he does exactly that. He throws it before the council and it turns into a snake. And then the others, the sorcerers, the other men that were in the place did similar things. Not miracles by way of God, but demonic witchcraft, things of that nature. And you see the story of Moses' staff consuming theirs, which is insane and would make an awesome movie. And there's probably some movie out there that has it, but it had to have been an awesome moment to see if you could go back and have anything recorded in scripture. I would say that's definitely top 10 for me. I'd want to see that moment, certainly. But miracles that do not point to Christ are not miracles. I would say that we have too broad of a definition of what a miracle is. We, you know, we say like, well, that was a miracle that I found that parking spot. Hmm. No, <laughs> like it might've been favor. It might've been like something good. I'm not saying that like God's hand isn't on everything because it is. I'm not saying that he doesn't bless us and things like that, but like a miracle, I don't know if it's a miracle. A miracle would be all of a sudden you're sitting there and the next thing you know, you're standing in that parking spot, right? <laughs> like you teleported. That is a miracle. Um, as much as I love babies, babies are not Miracles, I mean, and I know that they're a miracle to you and they're miraculous and, and it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, but it can be ex- explained. Like we know how this works, right? One and one make two and this is how this, this kind of thing unfolds. It's miraculous in itself and it's a gift from God, but it isn't supernatural. Miracles that do not point to Christ are not miracles. So this goes back to our calling. This goes back to understanding who God is and understanding his word. There are churches that people might go to, or I say churches lightly, that, that maybe miracles are taking place. You know, I, I was with, and you, if you know me and you've known a little bit about my story, I've ran with some interesting groups at the time. I've, I've been a part of ministries that things maybe got a little bit more on the wilder side. And I know that different backgrounds, maybe you've experienced things like this, I remember being in a, a service where, you know, people were st- sticking their head in a big bowl and they would stick their head in there and they would be, they would taste honey and smell honey. And like, that was what everyone was just getting excited about. And I didn't participate in it. I thought about it and thought, I don't know, it seems a little strange. I'm not sure how this is sending us to Christ because it wasn't. What, were they really having that experience? Sure, maybe. I don't know. I would say that there are powerful things that are not from God that exist in this world. Paul would agree with that. He says that even if an angel from heaven itself comes and preaches a different gospel to you, it ain't him. It ain't, it's not from heaven. It's not. So don't think that just because someone sees something supernatural means that it's from God. True miracles point to the true God. 
And so we have to understand that as we are being equipped, we have to know that our calling matters, our discipline matters, because you can, you can, read, uh, you can read your entire life, the laws, the, the, the standards, the government of uh, the most random city or nation in the world. Take Tasmania. You could learn everything that you know about it. You could learn every single thing that you know. You could invest your life into it. But if it has, it, it may have no bearing, no weight on anything that you're existing in today. Does that make sense? That, that there are people that can spend their entire lives devoting themselves to the wrong thing. And so that's why our calling, our discipline matters so much. That's why good doctrine leads to right practice. We've heard this before, that um, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. You've heard this. Psalm 37, 4, maybe sometimes we glance over the first part of that. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that he's going to give you, you know, a mother of pearl paint job Rolls Royce, because that's just what your heart wants. What he's saying is, first, delight yourself in the Lord. So have the discipline, understand who he is, and then he will give you the desires of your heart because your heart will be aligned with his desire. So if you're just praying that, if you're praying for something just off the wall, completely random against God's will, and you're confused because he hasn't blessed it, because you're saying, well, you, you're not giving me the desires of my heart. Well, we know through God's word that our hearts are naturally wicked. So he's not giving you the desires of your heart because you first must delight yourself in the Lord. God equips us after our calling by allowing us to engage in understanding him more clearly through his word, through prayer, through his people, through his leaders, and through the gathering of those people. And so, does God equip? Does he equip? Yes. Is there effort on our own side as far as maintaining that and understanding that and equipping? Yes. Nowhere in scripture does it say to just sit off idly and people will pass by you and they'll, they'll teach you at times. We have to get out. We have to submit ourselves. And so God not only calls us, we can see in this text that he not only called these men, he equipped these men, but he also provides. And I, I want to also say that these five points that I'm making I'm not in any way saying that this is the, the formula or that this is the exact order. This isn't the order salutis. This isn't like some sort of divine order that I've just pulled out of the text that I think there's a lot of times that God is through providing, he is equipping, that through revealing, he is defending. That This is a, a, a combination of all of these things. And so it's not necessarily an order, but I like the order that the text gives here. And so that's why we're going with it. So, Verse 7, though, God provides, and he calls the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 8, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So Jesus tells them, you will have nothing on this journey except for your staff. Which is interesting because the, um, in Matthew and Luke, this same account is given. And the apostles then, it's, it's in your scriptures, you'll see in Matthew 10 and in Luke 9, you'll see that uh, they actually say you can't even bring your staffs. 
So is this, so you might think like, well, what's, what's the deal? What's the, is there a conflict here? Well, Psalm 24, 3 says that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod and the staff were traditional implements of a shepherd. The staff was the shepherd's crook by which he could use to guide his sheep. It served him as a walking stick as well. And so what Mark is speaking about is different. It's in contrast to the rod that is in view for Matthew and Luke. Therefore, if this is, this is not a shepherd's weapon that Matthew and Luke were talking about that would guard them against bears and lions and thieves. So this isn't a conflict. This is that you, what Jesus is saying is that you are allowed to take with you not your powerful rods, but you are allowed to take with you your walking stick. <laughs> This, this had to have intimidated the disciples because the, what they're, when you go out onto a journey or you go out onto a, a mission, you want to make sure that you have more than enough. We have more than enough seats today. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I'm not worried about no one not having a seat. Last week we were a little crowded. Maybe next week we'll be a little bit more crowded. But you always want to over-prepare. I gave Dale more scriptures to put up on that screen than we're going to need. A lot more <laughs> than we're going to need. But I want to be prepared the best that I can. And what Jesus did is not unwise, but he's teaching them. You will take with you your staff. And so with the lack of the rod, with the lack of the weapon, Jesus is saying, them that, saying to them that you will trust me to provide for you protection. So Jesus provides for them protection. He says to them that you will take with you no bread. When I, when I read that you won't take any bread, my mind goes to Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. It says that the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So Jesus has, or God has done this before, where he said, Look, I'm going to provide for my people just enough. I'm gonna, and he even says, if you recall in Exodus where the people are gathering and some of them are gathering stuff for tomorrow and he's like, no, 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 you're not gathering stuff for tomorrow. I said, you walk out there and you get your bread for today. Well, what about tomorrow? And God's reminded, I'm, I'm going to be there tomorrow. In fact, he's already there in tomorrow, that, that he exists, that that is his. And so he is uh, giving them this idea of having to rely on this. And this isn't a state that we are always in or necessarily always want to be. I don't always want to be in the state of having to figure out where my next meal is going to be or where my next paycheck is going to come from or how I'm going to provide diapers for the kids. I don't want to be in those situations. Have I been in those situations? Yeah. I would say from some of your maybe hot knit, wait, head nodding a little bit, maybe you've been in some of those situations that, that you've had to say like, Lord, I don't know where this is going to come from but I need it to be here. And so with the lack of food, Jesus is saying to his disciples that you will, you will trust me to provide for you nourishment. So he provides protection. He provides nourishment. Then he says that you will have no bag. You will have no money in your belts. The commentaries I've read, they all seem to agree that Jesus is not referring here to a satchel or just a regular like backpack you might say, but is rather referring to a beggar's bag, something that, that people would have carried with them at times whenever they would need to beg for food, beg for money, beg for some change that they could provide for themselves. Jesus is pr pr 
forbidding them for begging for their needs. He is saying that with the lack of money and the lack of this beggar's bag, Jesus is saying that you will trust me to provide for you your finances. Jesus is saying to these men, you are going to have to depend on me at every point of this mission. You are not going to take anything with you, not even the slightest bit of change in your pocket. That he is provider, that he is going, he even says, look, you're not going to have anything with you. It is going to be me. You will have your staff and he will give to you another brother that will go with you. So he, he does provide companionship for these men so they could go out for their own safety and for their own witness. Once again, you've, you've heard me say over and over, you've heard Pastor Greg say over and over uh, how much the, the prosperity gospel is just a, an absolute joke, right? That, uh, and, and we, if you've been a Christian for more than a month, you realize that like you didn't get rich as soon as you got saved, right? I mean, if that were the case, everyone would be saved, saved, right? Um, that, that we would just be able to uh, say, you know, Jesus, I accept you. And then all of a sudden, gifts would just be lavished upon us. It's not always that way. Does God give good gifts? Yes. He gives good things. He gives us children, shelter at times. But he gives us his son. And so the prosperity cannot be, or God's love cannot be measured by how good or comfortable our lives are at this given state, this given time. John Piper once said that if God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort of this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul more than anyone. Uh, I like that quote. I've used it several times because it's so true that, that would be, that's, a big, that's a big story to miss for the prosperity gospel, how Paul was treated. That if, we, that if the end goal of our Christian walk is just so that God might bless us, then we're missing the point and we need to go back to our calling. We need to go back to who we have been called by and how that calling has been paid for. He does allow them to wear sandals. I'm sure that they were relieved by that. Matthew and Luke stay, uh, state more specifically light sandals. I don't know what that means. I guess you got, they had their light shoes and they're a little bit heavier shoes, right? They're maybe their work sandals and then they're just their flip-flops. And Jesus is like, you're taking the flip-flops, right? You're taking the lightest ones. You're getting your five below sandals and I want you to walk on those things. That's what you're going to be having. And you can't bring two tunics, by the way. So you need to have uh, just one of those things with you. One cover up. Matthew's account uh, says, again, the, the light sandals. In the ancient world, though, travelers would have often slept outdoors. And so the purpose of a second tunic was to uh, serve as to cover themselves from the elements. And so they would have been concerned because one tunic would have been to cover themselves up. The other would have been to cover themselves from the elements of being outside overnight. And what Jesus is saying by the lack of the the, the sandals and the extra tunic, Jesus is saying that you will trust me with your shelter. You will trust me. Jesus is sending these men out saying, I'm not going to go with you, but when you get back, you're going to be closer to me because of this. Sometimes when we go out or sometimes when we face difficult seasons in our lives, we might in those moments think, man, it just doesn't feel like the Lord is close. 
And then as we begin to walk through that season or that dark time, we come maybe to the end of it or we come out of it or even in the midst of it, we begin to realize that I am becoming closer to the Lord because of this difficulty. When I started, when when I moved over to a job that uh, I don't get paid a penny unless I make a sale, commission only, which, you know, you've heard, maybe you've lived in that sort of life. It is difficult. It's an emotional roller coaster. When you're winning, you're winning and it feels amazing. And when you're losing, you couldn't feel more of a loser. I mean, if you go week after week after week without a sale, you're like, Lord, I'm putting in the effort. I need you to meet me at this effort. But during this time of me having to walk through that in my, my own personal journey, I have become more and more relaxed, not because I've gotten better at my job, trust me. Like, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I was, I was put on this earth to be a pastor. I'm just doing, you know, I can sloppily put up tents the best that I can. But as I'm, as I'm learning, as I'm walking through this of having to uh, have s- this faith of not knowing where the next paycheck has co- is coming from, it has drawn me nearer to the Lord knowing that it is him that provides. Lord, you know the bill that I have to pay. And I'm not gonna stress about it. I'm gonna continue working because if I just sit down and don't do anything, then yeah, I'm not gonna get anything. And I can be mad at myself over it. But if I'm doing what the Lord has called me to, or I'm giving my best effort, then I can trust the Lord knowing that he provides and has provided and he continues to provide even despite our effort. And so the Lord teaches us through this text that he has called us, that he is equipping us, that he provides for us. And he moves over and says that not only does he do these things, but he will defend you. Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter into a house, stay there until you depart from here. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 10 here, perhaps Jesus is giving them wisdom that he gives in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, 37, it says that let what, is, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let your, you've heard let your yes be yes and your no be no. Like whatever you say, do. If you, if you show up into someone's house and this is maybe a poor man's home, you are not to leave it. Even if a wealthy man comes along the way and invites you to something better, invites you to move into a better home. In other words, they were not there to just try to find the best offer by risking or offending a humble homeowner. I think that this may be a, maybe a more difficult lesson for us as Westerners, that we sometimes feel that we always deserve something better. You know, that we, we always, you know, I've got what I've got, but like I want something more. Like I, I want a vehicle, yeah, but I'm, like right now I drive a car, it hasn't had air conditioning in a couple of years, and I'm like, that, that's not a necessity. Some days it feels like a necessity, right? But you, you're driving that around, and sometimes you, as Westerners, I think especially, we can so easily think that God's not actually providing for me because my XM radio is not working. <laughs> or God's not actually providing for me because this isn't our dream home. Or this isn't exactly, this isn't the job that I necessarily wanted to be in. And when you look to what the scripture says and promises to, I think, think I, I see that things seem pretty basic. 
the good news of the gospel is that we get Jesus. That is what God provides. And so he's saying, trust me that he will defend you. Because in verse 11, he says that if, any, uh, if you're in any place and they will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This may seem a, maybe a bit rude, but the Jews who traveled in Gentile regions in the Old Testament, you would see a lot, and also in the New, when they would come home, they were required to shake the dust off of their feet at the border, lest they bring con, uh, contamination of the pagan world into Israel. And so literally before they would get to the border, they would take off their shoes and dust off all the dust off of it as a, as a way to show that they are not going to bring the contamination of the pagan world into Israel. And so that symbol, it symbolized God's judgment of the pagan world. In Acts 13, you can see Paul and Barnabas doing the exact same thing. The point here is that there is no indifference to Christ. You are either for him or against him. And in the kingdom of God, there is no neutral ground. That, that Jesus is sending these people out and he says that you're going to be able to tell right away if people are for you or against you. And then if they are against you, move on. Don't harp on it. Dust off your shoes and move on to the next house. Lastly, we see that the word, through the word, reveals Christ, that that's what these men are experiencing, the revelation of who Jesus is. Like I said, they're going to go away without Jesus and come back having known him better. Mark concludes, he says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick, and he healed them. The apostles did just as Jesus commanded. They exercised their authority over demons and disease. So you would say you could say that this was a successful trial run, a, a micro picture of the mighty and ongoing mission of the church. That this is the mission of the church. It still exists today. God still desires a people that recognize that they are more than just saved, but they are called. Paul says that he is gladly spent. So he isn't just saved for the gospel, but he spends for the gospel. What Jesus is giving these men is the perspective that there is hope beyond their own goals and ambitions. Which I say, praise God to. If, if this life was just about your goals and your ambitions, you would be either really happy if you're you know, that ambitious or successful of a person, you'd be really happy until you would just realize that those things would leave you empty to begin with, or you would always struggle thinking that your happiness just lies into your next goal. Jesus is reminding these men that when God saves you, he has saved you from something. Romans 2.5 speaks of this thing that they are being saved from and how it is being revealed to them. 
But because of your hand and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You don't want God's righteousness to finally be revealed to you on the day of judgment. But it will be if it isn't revealed to you now. That this is what these disciples knew. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. This glory that, that God continues to reveal to us, that he continues to show us in his word through his son. That as we are walking in this life and we are on this journey as Christians who, who say and who uh, acknowledge that God has called us, we can't overlook or despise that he has not only called us, but he has given us authority that equips us. He has given us the perspective to know that he provides for his children. I don't know about you, but um, especially providing and defending and revealing, those are things that I have to constantly remind myself. And I have to be reminded by others. Um, You know, I have to remind Kelsey, she has to remind me that God is going to provide however it might be, however, whatever way that it, it might work out, whatever means that he seems necessary, he provides, he equips. So what is going to be revealed to us is what is already being revealed, and that is Christ Jesus. One of my biggest pet peeves is anytime someone opens to the book of Revelations or or they call it revelations, but rather revelation. That's probably one of my biggest pet peeves when someone says, because it is but one revelation, Jesus. It is not multiple revelations, because if you say revelations, then you're, it's Jesus and something else, right? It is just one thing that, that from cover to cover in our scripture, it is Jesus being either concealed, but later revealed or revealed. This is our revelation Every single week, we preach Jesus. Why? Because you need to hear it over and over and over. You need to be reminded of the centrality of this life, and that is Christ Jesus. Because when our ambitions and our goals come in between those things, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if anything comes between you, even if it's God's law, comes between you and your discipline to Christ or knowing who Christ is, then you'll be on the wrong path. And so as we look to God's word, I I hope that it encourages you, that it it edifies you, that that you look around and as you're holding your children or you're uh, going to work or you walk into your home or even when you get into the vehicle that you can recognize that, Lord, this is your good work. This is you providing for me. And in turn, us knowing that we should be good stewards of those things that God has provided. Because it is through God's perfect work and sovereign decree 
that God calls. It is through his passion and his long-suffering that God equips. It is through his mercy and goodness that God provides. It is through his power and his promises that God defends. And it is through his son, Jesus, that he is and will forever be revealing more of himself. The good news of our calling is not just that we are saved from our sins, but that we are saved unto our Savior. He doesn't just free us, he adopts us. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.